So we got finished with our uh, sermon series on the book of Daniel a couple of weeks ago, and then we had a, a great celebration last week. And so today we're starting a, a new sermon series, and it's called Messy. Are you a messy person? I, I confess I am. I'm the polar opposite of my wife, who likes things nice and orderly. But I, I'm kind of on the messy side. And you know what? Let's face it. Being a Christian and trying to be faithful to God can be messy, can't it? You know? And in this series, we're going to explore some of the messy parts of, of our faith. I like to think of this series as, as being a series for all the imperfect Christians out there. In other words, all of us. <laughs> and as we say on our website, we are an imperfect people pursuing a perfect God. That's what we're doing. And because we're imperfect and we're on a faith journey, that journey can often be messy. So we're going to be exploring a few different areas of messiness in our spiritual lives. We're going to be looking, first of all, at the area of messiness in our spiritual lives, in our theology, how we can uh, misunderstand things. We're also going to be looking at messiness in the church, right? How do we do this thing called community, right? If you've been in church for a while, you know it's not always plain sailing. It's sticky. We, you get into arguments with people, you know, because we're a family like any other family. So we're going to be looking at some of the messiness of church. How do we do church together? And then we're also going to be looking at the messiness of loving others. Because sometimes it's not easy to love others, is it? It's easy to love people who love you back and who you like. But what about the other people we're called to love? So we're going to be looking at a number of different areas as we go through this series. Um, and so today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at how we can have a messy or in this case, messed up view of who God is and how he relates to us. Um, in the movie Gran Torino, which uh, was directed by and starred Clint Eastwood, the beginning of the movie starts like this. Clint Eastwood, he's the father figure, and he's standing at his wife's funeral. And his grandkids are there, and like most kids, they often don't understand the, you know, the seriousness of a, of a funeral and what have you. So the kids are messing around, they're goofing about and, and doing what, whatever kids do. And he's looking at the kids disapprovingly. He's very unhappy about their behavior. And his two adult sons spot their father looking at their kids disapprovingly. And they share a moment together and one son remarks, you know, there's nothing anyone can do that won't disappoint the old man. It's inevitable. And the movie basically revolves around Clint Eastwood's character. He's a, he's a guy called Walt. And he's, he's an aging man. And he, uh, he's a, a, a white American. And he's living in a, a predominantly Chinese-American community. And he, he doesn't like that. And he's basically hurtful and bitter with occasional glimpses of kindness. Now, here's the thing. For many of us, for many believers, this is a caricature of what they believe about God. Many people have this idea that God is he's just waiting for an opportunity to be disappointed at us. That he's just waiting for us to screw up so he can shake his head at us and punish us in some way. 
Maybe you have that view of God. Maybe you had a real life father who was like that. And here's the thing. You might not admit it outwardly, right, around church folks, because, you know, God is love and we have to put on a good front, right? Praise God, he's love and compassion and all that. So I, I wouldn't let other people know this. But inwardly, maybe you live under the shadow of God's disapproval, of feeling that he's always disappointed and angry at you and just waiting for an excuse to scream and yell at you. Is that you, G? Is there a part of you that wonders if that is God and how he relates to you? The renowned atheist, uh, Richard Dawkins, um, he wrote a book, a bestseller called The God Delusion. And he wrote this in it. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Nice little jab there, all fiction. Yeah. He says, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, infantile, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I think he was using a thesaurus for that. But that's, that's who Richard Dawkins thinks the God he says he doesn't believe in is like. Well, is that who God is? Is that how he feels about you and me? And while you might not fully agree with Dawkins, is your view of God a little messy? Well, let's take a look at the passage that we just read from in Luke chapter 15. And many of you will perhaps be uh, familiar with it. It's often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. But I want to ask this question up front. Is it really about the son? Let's take a look. Let's take a look at this passage. So we're told that a man is, he has two sons and the younger son requests his share of his father's estate or inheritance. And what, right off the get-go, there's an interesting subtlety there. That The Greek word there for inheritance or or uh, Estate, it literally means the life. So the son is requesting the portion of what his father's life will leave him. Now, this would have been incredibly insulting. Right? This was not the same as somebody today maybe asking their parents if they can have access to, to a trust fund that's been set up for them or something like this. No, in first century Middle East in Judea here, a father's estate was not usually divided until the father's death. So the son is essentially saying, I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance. And when you think about that, that must have broken the father's heart to hear those words coming from his son, from his baby boy. I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance. Because he's, basically, he's saying, all you are good for in my life is the inheritance you can give me. And once I have that, you're essentially dead to me. I have no use for you in my life. What does the father do? He doesn't scold his son. He doesn't reprimand him. He actually obliges his son and he, he gives him his share of the inheritance. There's a little reminder for us here that just like this father, there's a place where God will let the sinner go their own way. When we deliberately 
make up our mind to turn away from God, to do our own thing, to, to step outside of God's will for us, then God will let the sinner go their own way. He's not going to force you to stay on the straight and narrow. Now, next what we see, we see what happens when, when you walk away from God, when you walk away from the Father, when you abandon God. Because soon after this son abandons his father, his life takes a turn for the worse. He blows all his money in wild living, and he's left with nothing. He's blown all of his inheritance. And, you know, if this was a modern-day story, it would be something like, you know, he went to Vegas, and he blew all his money on gambling, on sex, and on drugs. And now he's completely broke out in the Nevada desert. That was his fault. That was his fault. He made bad choices, and as a result, there was bad repercussions because bad choices will create bad situations. And that was his fault. But you know what wasn't his fault? Was the severe famine that fell on the lands. That was something that was out of his control. And the famine's so bad and he's so hungry and he has no money that he has to resort to seeking work. And he's so desperate for work that he takes a job feeding pigs. Now you've got to remember something here. As a Jew... This was one of the most dishonorable and filthy jobs you could imagine because pigs were considered unclean under the Jewish religious law. So this was a horrible job for him to do. And not only is he working with the pigs, but he's so desperate and he's so hungry that he's like, you know what? The pig's food looks good to me. This is how, how desperate he was. And in verse 16, it says this, but no one gave him anything. No one gave him anything. Right there is a picture of utter loneliness and despair. And this gives us a picture of what life looks like without God. When we walk away from God, or worse, we deny God's existence, you may or may not realize it, but what happens is you create a loneliness in your soul that often you're not even consciously aware of, because what do we do? We mask the loneliness with busyness, with mindless entertainment. We numb our minds with pick your poison of, of alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, but anything to mask the loneliness in our souls when we don't have God in our lives. And what we're doing there is we're starving ourselves of spiritual nourishment. We're starving ourselves of the bread of life. And of the springs of living water that only God can offer. So the son is experiencing the loneliness of walking away from his father. But then in verse 17, it says the son comes to his senses. He comes to his senses. You know what precedes coming to your senses? A period of delusion. A period of foolishness, a period of idiocy. It's when you have people around you saying, what are you doing, man? You need to come to your senses. Wake up. And this is what happens with the younger son. He knows he's messed up. He knows that he's made a mess of things. And so what does he do? He decides to return to his father. But he doesn't expect to return and be treated like a son. He doesn't expect to be treated like family 
because of what he's done. But he thinks, but maybe I can be hired as a servant. Perhaps I could, you know, if I could just get hired as a servant, at least I'll have food to eat every day. And so he's getting ready to return to the Father. And what does he do? He, he prepares his confession and his repentance, right? He rehearses it. In verses 18 to 19, he says this, I will set out and go back to my Father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Notice there, no excuses. Just basically, I messed up. And he accepts the consequences of his choices and he humbly confesses. And you know, right there, what you've got is you've got a picture of what repentance should look like. No claims or partial justifications, but just clear-cut repentance and reliance on God's mercy and provision. And so the son heads back to his father, rightfully expecting to be confronted by maybe an angry or a hurt or a bitter father who will most likely punish him. Perhaps he'll berate, perhaps he'll humiliate him. The son is probably heading back to his father, not knowing what to expect, but probably filled with dread. What's my father going to say? What's he going to do to me? How's he going to deal with me? You know, is he going to see me in the distance and be like, well, well, look who's back. Look what the cat dragged in. But listen to what happens next, verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. So what's the, what's the father's first reaction when he sees his lost son in the distance? Is he angry? Is he resentful? Is he outraged? Is he full of contempt? Is he full of vengeance? Is he full of disdain? Is he, is he full of vindictiveness and unforgiveness like Richard Dawkins, God? No. He's filled with compassion. He sees his lost son coming in the distance and he sees the pitiful state that he's in and he's filled with compassion. And not only that, but he, he runs, he runs out to greet him and then smothers him with hugs and kisses. Now, let me tell you something. You didn't do that in that culture. That was very unbecoming of a man in this culture to run, first of all, to run and then to smother your son with hugs and kisses. You didn't do that back in first century Judea. As Tim Keller said, he said, as a general rule, distinguished Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. But here's the father. He's so, he's so overjoyed to see his lost son returning that he doesn't care about the protocol and the etiquette. And the son begins his confession, right, that he's prepared for his father. He's like, you know, father, I've sinned against heaven and, and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And it's like his father's like, Pfft. stop, would you? Stop, would you? Quick, bring the best robe. Put a ring on him. Put sandals on his feet. And you know, the best robe in the house would have been the father's own robe. So the father clothes the son in his own robe. And he's saying, you're restored. You're restored to the family. You're part of my family. Here's my robe. Wear it. Here's a ring. Maybe that ring had the family seal on it. And then he says, it's time for a celebration. 
Come on, let's party. Verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Kill the fattened calf. A fattened calf was an animal that was specially fed and prepared for a big celebration. And meat was rarely eaten in the first century Middle East. So this was clearly for a special occasion. People didn't normally have meat with their meals. It was only for special occasions, unless you were aristocracy. Why was he celebrating so much? Well, we get our answer in verse 24. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, why did Jesus tell this parable? Because we know, if you know anything about Jesus, he uses parables, they're teaching moments. They are to teach us something. So why did Jesus teach us this parable? What was his goal? Well, it was to show us the heart of God the Father. It was to show us how he truly sees and loves us. You see, the central figure of this parable, it's not the younger son or the older brother, it's the father. And of course, who does the father represent? God. Jesus is showing us this is how God truly sees us. And you see, too, all too often we get God wrong in our heads and we walk in shame and condemnation because we think God is constantly angry at us for messing up, that he's some kind of harsh taskmaster and he's always aggravated and annoyed with us. But what Jesus is teaching us here is that nothing could be further from the truth. We might abandon God. We might walk away from God. We might scorn God. We might break his heart, but he will not give up on us. And here's the thing. When we mess up, and we all inevitably do, often what's your reaction? We feel ashamed. We, we feel like we, we feel scared of approaching God, don't we? You know, we, I, I experience this a lot as a, as a parent. I'm sure many of you do, right? But, you know, what, what, what do kids do when they've done something naughty? They lie. They lie. Vesper, who did this? Dove did it. No, who really did it? I was on the moon at the time. It wasn't me. <laughs> Kids, they lie, right? Why do they lie? Because they're scared of getting in trouble, right? And of course, you're constantly teaching them, look, now you're in double trouble because you did something naughty and you've lied about it right? And we try to teach our kids, don't lie, okay? But that, you know, the kid's worried that we're going to punish them. And often we, we, we're like that towards God, right? We've, we've done something we know is displeasing to God. We've sinned. Um, and then we think, I can't come before God because he's going to punish me. He's going to be angry at me. He's going he's to be annoyed. He's going to be aggravated. But look at the reaction of the father when he sees his son approaching from a distance. It's one of joy, of excitement, of compassion, of celebration. Because when we come back to God, even if it's with our tail between our legs, that brings joy to the father. Because he's saying, look, I know you messed up, but I want you back. Don't run away from me. Don't hide in shame. Come before me so that I can restore you. God wants that. He wants us to come back to him when we've messed up so that he can restore us and welcome us back into the family. Leon Morris, who's a, a Bible commentator and scholar, he said this. He said, the story of the prodigal son is not there to show us that God behaves as good men. 
It is there to teach us of the free and boundless grace of God. He does not wait for men to become good before he forgives. He's always ready in his love and his grace and his mercy to receive them. So something we all have to remember here is our good deeds are not something we have to do to make God like us. It's not a case of like, well, if I do enough good deeds and I'm a good enough person, then maybe God will kind of like me. Maybe he'll be happy with me. No, we, we don't have to do good deeds for God to like us. He already loves us. And on the flip side, our bad deeds do not mean we are cut off from his love. And it's because of God's grace towards us. Exodus 34 verse 6 in the Old Testament says this, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, That doesn't exactly sound like the God Richard Dawkins claims to exist in the Old Testament, does it? Now, in sharing this parable, Jesus is showing us God's true disposition towards us. And remember something, Jesus is the one who shows us what the Father is like. Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father. Listen to Hebrews 1, verse 3a. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So when we see Jesus and his heart for us, we are also seeing the Father heart of God towards us. And it's one of love and compassion and forgiveness and mercy. And it's a heart that would die for us and in fact did die for us. It's a heart and a love that would give his life in our place so that we do not have to face the punishment of sin. That's how much the Father loves us. I was talking about this with with a group of folks yesterday. You know how much God loves us? He loves us this much. God has known from eternity that the cross would happen. He's already all the cross has always been there. God has always known the cross would happen. And God knew that by creating this world and creating us. That would mean the cross had to happen. That he would have to send his one and only son to die for us. God knew all that and he still created us. Because that's how much he loves you and I. Now, if you're anything like Sarah and myself, perhaps maybe more Sarah than me. um, If you're having guests over, what do you do? You clean up, don't you? You clean up. Put things in place. You, you dust, you, you, know, you, you clean your bathroom. Okay, and uh, why, why do we do that? Okay, yeah, part of it is because we want to be gracious to our guests and you know, make sure they have a nice place to visit him. But let's be honest, the big part of it is we don't want them to know what slobs we really are. <laughs> huh? We don't want them to see how we really live and how messy we are. So we, we clean up. So when they come over, they're like, hey, we always live like this. (laughs) But we feel like we have to get our act together and clean things up before we can have our guests over. And, you know, here's the thing. Um, Too often with God, we think we have to do the same thing. Right? We think, "I I need to clean up my act and have it all together before I can approach God. Because I don't want him to see the way I really am, you know, like he doesn't already know. But we feel like we have to... 
clean up our act before we can approach God. But is that what happens with the son here in this story? He's in a pitiful, miserable state and he still comes back to his father. We don't have to pretend to be something we aren't to please God. We don't have to clean up our act before we can come to him. We don't need to be afraid of him when our lives are a mess of our own doing. He longs to welcome us back into his arms, no matter how filthy we might be. But here's the thing, we have a choice. We have a choice. The son had to make a decision to repent and turn back to the father. And we have to make the decision to repent and come back just like the son did. Fact is, we're not going to be perfect in our spiritual walk. Our journey of faith is messy. We're going to have struggles and we're going to have failures. I can share many with you of my own failures through the years. There are ways I fail every day. There are ways I struggle every day. But you know what? I know that I'm in good company. and I know that you are in good company if that's you. Because Paul, the super apostle Paul, writes about having struggles of his own. He says in Romans 7, 15, you can hear the frustration in what he's writing. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. You ever feel like that? Why did I do that? I didn't want to do that, but I did it. I'm not going to lose my temper this time. I'm not going to yell and scream. I'm not going to get drunk this time. I'm not going to get high this time. I'm not going to look at those websites I shouldn't be looking at. I'm not, I'm not going to lie this, t this time. And then what happens? You do, and you feel like a failure as a Christian. You feel like you're not worthy. You feel like you're a fraud. You feel like you're a fake. And you look around at all these other perfect saints in the church and how they've got it all together and how I don't. And if they only knew what I did yesterday. You're not a fraud. You're not a fake. And it doesn't mean you're a failure. It means you're human. Do we think Paul was a fraud or a fake or a failure, even though he clearly admits he had struggles of his own? No. Instead of fearing God's punishment because you've messed up, again, embrace the truth and the grace that God extends us and give him thanks for his infinite love and grace for you. Because the Father's arms are always open when we turn back in repentance. I want to end by reminding you that when we are in Jesus, there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Because that's the basic point here. Nothing you do can separate you from the love of God if you're in Christ Jesus. And so I want to read for you Romans 8, verses 38 to 39. So it's the same Paul who just confessed his struggles, by the way, writing. He says, for I am convinced, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, 
I will, Lord. Let's pray.